As you do, go ahead and grab your Bibles. We're going to make a few stops this morning. Uh, In the Scriptures, we'll be looking at Isaiah chapter 14. We'll be looking at Genesis 3. And we'll also be looking at Matthew chapter 16. My name is Jason. I serve as one of the elders here at Church in the Square. And though we are uh, on a long journey in Romans, we're taking a pause today and considering what the Bible teaches about Satan. Um, And as we mentioned last week, I don't really think the, the evil one likes when we talk about him. He likes for us to neglect his existence and presence. And I think that therefore we should expect that this is going to be hard for us, that this is not going to be very comfortable uh, because I don't think that he likes it. And yet, in God's kindness, uh, greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. And so we, we go forward in joy and expectation. And I want to give us a little bit of context about why we would look at what the Scriptures teach about Satan. Because many of us, no doubt, grew up in different kinds of contexts, different kinds of experiences, or maybe even have different mindsets right now about how to think about spiritual things in general, particularly the darkness of the spiritual realm, and specifically Satan uh, himself. And so I think it's just important to be mindful because something like Halloween is a very interesting day. It's a day in which many of our friends and neighbors are cognizant or at least interact at some level with spiritual things. Uh, Perhaps they don't 364 other days of the year, but in this particular day, there's kind of a mindfulness around these things. And and so I I hope that it will be instructive for us to get clear about the spiritual realm. See, I I think what the scriptures are going to help us see is that we don't need to be fearful and we don't need to flee, but we do need to be thoughtful. Because I think depending on how you grew up, you probably have one or two ways of dealing with the spiritual realm, particularly the dark levels of the spiritual realm and particularly Satan. We either are terrified of him or are we, we ignore him altogether? Perhaps you grew up in a setting that, that made you believe or think about that Satan was around every corner, that anything that you did that was wrong, but he was going to get you, and that this was not going to go well for you, and that he was a power over you. And so perhaps you grew up in this spirit of fear around darkness, around Satan himself. But for others of us, maybe you grew up in a Christian context or not, you were, you were kind of negligent or told like, Really, we are a, maybe your family was like, we, we are a people of science. We are a people of the real world. And the spiritual realm is a nice illustration for how we're supposed to live our lives, but really not a threat to our everyday lives. And so it's important that your brothers and sisters who are in this room right now, and I've been mindful of or learning more and becoming more mindful of even this week, we, we face something like this very differently. For some of us, like we're like, yo, pastor, are you sure we should be talking about this things, these things? Because he, he might hear us, and that, and that can be fear-inducing. And, th- and that can be shame-inducing, for sure. Because wherever there's fear, there's shame. Wherever, wherever we have been taught to live our spiritual lives in fear, it's because shame is prevalent in that context or in that story. And so this may be hard or maybe even quite fright- frightening for you to think about. For others of us, we might think, could we just get back to Romans, please? Because that feels like way more uh, deft in walking out my spiritual life. This seems silly. This seems like a frivolous pursuit. Why would we even do it? And the answer for both of us about why we would face such a reality, even if it's fear-inducing or if it just feels like it's not something we should be considering at all, is because the Scriptures are very mindful of Satan. 
The scriptures are constantly bringing up the evil one or the destroyer or the accuser or the liar on these plethora of many different names that the scriptures call him. And I think it's important, not just because of a day like today or even tomorrow, many of our Mexican families, friends and neighbors are celebrating Dia de los Muertos. So this is like not just a thing about today, but it's about tomorrow and really every day for us to think about being mindful of what, does the, what do the scriptures say about what it means to live a life according to the scriptures, not fearful of Satan, but aware of him. See, in short, I think that we are either fearful of Satan or we ignore him completely. And I think what the scriptures teach, and I think this is helpful for many different conversations that we have today, is there is a third option, right? Many of our conversations today, it can be black or white, yes or no, and the scriptures provide often a level of nuance to things like this that we should be mindful of. 19th century French poet Charles Baudelaire said that the devil's greatest trick is convincing the world that he doesn't exist. The devil's greatest trick is convincing the world that he doesn't exist. See, Satan longs to be ignored. And so this is where we need to be mindful of today. If, if the scriptures are like a big spotlight, about light coming into the darkness, then what is confusing gets clarified, what is deceptive becomes truthful, and what is shame-inducing love shines on that. So, so if those are places that you've been navigating in the darkness of confusion or in the levels of shame, like what God's word does is it eradicates those things, brings truth and light and life and joy. Are you with me yet? In fact, one of my early uh, mentors, at least at a distance, was a man named Mike Iaconelli, who even put it this way, that if the devil can't keep you from Jesus, he's going to keep you busy. If the devil can't keep you from Jesus, he's just going to keep you busy. See, we may not be ignorant of Satan in that we don't know that he exists, but we may be ignorant of him in that we're just busy doing our thing. We're busy doing our thing, and, and often quite negligent of the whole spiritual realm. We like tactile things and physical things, things that I can taste, touch, and see with my own physical faculties, right? So there's a pair of holidays to consider, but there's an everyday life for us to, I think, be much more cognizant of about the devil and his schemes. See, in our daily, I think, devotion to the Lord, the Bible teaches us that the more busier we become, and the more busy we become, rather, in earthly pursuits, the less mindful we become, not only of Satan, but of the lordship of Jesus over all things. And even though we're, we're ignorant and busy, that doesn't mean that these things are not having an effect on us. In fact, I think that's what the evil one loves. Stay ignorant of him and busy doing earthly things, all the while we are, are missing the flourishing and fruit that I think God intends for us. So, so that's my desire for us today. Not to scare anybody, but also not to be ignorant of what the scriptures teach about what the word, about rather who Satan is. And in order to do that, in order to help us be more fruitful and less distracted, I want to help us consider four things to be more vigilant. Four things. You know, as preachers, we like to start with just like a few things and we keep handles on. So we got four today. All right. We got four. The first is the origin of Satan. So we'll look at the origin of Satan. We'll look at the power of Satan. We'll look at the plan of Satan. And then by God's grace, we'll look at the defeat of Satan. So we'll look at the origin, the power, the plan, and then the defeat. And to do that, we'll navigate through Isaiah 14. And then we'll look at Genesis chapter 3. And then lastly, in Matthew 16. The origin, the power, the plan, and the defeat. And because of all that we've already said, it's important to go to God and ask for his help. So let's do that before we open up his word. Heavenly Father, left to ourselves, we have no idea what's going on. 
And yet we can be so convinced that we see things clearly. So help me, Father, help us to be a people who are mindful of the things that your word calls and commands us to be mindful of. Father, help us to be a people that if your word teaches it, that we submit ourselves to it. And that where your word is silent, that we are silent and yet we are hopeful and faithful and trust you. So help me to be clear and responsible with your word today. Help my friends. Father, as we hear your word proclaimed over us, would we be grounded in a world that feels like it's shifting all the time? May we see your control in a world that feels chaotic. May we sense your love in a world riddled with shame. And may we know the hope of the gospel in a world that is desperately in need of hope. We love you. We thank you in Jesus' name. Everybody agreed and said, amen. All right, let's make haste. Isaiah chapter 14, verses 12 through 15. We'll first consider the origin of Satan. The origin of Satan. Isaiah 14, verse 12 through 15 reads this way. How you are fallen from heaven, O day star, son of dawn. How you are cut down to the ground, you who laid the nations low. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. Above the stars of God, I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. But you are brought down to Sheol to the far reaches of the pit. Let me give us a little bit of context. Isaiah, of course, is the writer. He's a prophet. A prophet in the scriptures is not just one who tells the future, but one who says, here's what God says. Here's what God says. So we have to be careful about belittling the role of a prophet simply down to telling the future. A prophet says, thus saith the Lord. And so Isaiah is not saying, here's what I think, here's what I feel, or here's what I want you to know, but he is saying, thus saith the Lord. So what does the Lord say? Well, in particular, he is speaking to a people who are declining who are losing cultural momentum, who are feeling as though things are not going well for their people. They are succumbing to a foreign empire, the Assyrian Empire, around 700 or mid to late 700 BC. And it's in that particular moment that Isaiah is speaking about someone in particular obviously falling out of power. He's speaking about the king of Babylon. And so he is speaking about something that all of his readers would have known about. This is not something like, oh, I wonder, wonder what's happening. They would have known what he is talking about. And in fact, he is speaking, Isaiah is, in a time not only when there is judgment coming upon God's people, but when this enemy power is rising. And in, in Isaiah 6.10, he even calls the people of God deaf and blind. So the reason that they're declining is because of their sin. And the reason there is this ascent of foreign power is because of their sin. And this historically, this passage is historically understood as the fall of Satan. Now, here's something really important. Isaiah didn't know he was writing that, more than likely. Here's how powerful God's word is, and, and I think this gives us great hope. Sometimes God uses people, and we don't even know for what purpose. Sometimes God has used you in, in the, in the, on the road of obedience to accomplish something for his purposes, and we may not even see all of the fruit. We may not even see all of the ends. And so because we come to this text on the other side of the cross and with the benefit and blessing of the New Testament, we can look back and understand that Isaiah is not just talking about the fall of the king of Babylon, but he's actually talking about the fall of Satan. 
How do we know something that particular about this? Well, Jesus says in Luke chapter 10, verse 18, that I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. So we have the words of Jesus looking back into the words of Isaiah, quoting them, understanding them, then contextualizing them, and giving us not just an historical moment, but ultimately a cosmic moment of when the evil one fell from God's grace, fell from heaven. And this is, I think, really important for us to understand that what theologians call a double fulfillment. So sometimes when we read a a text historically, there is a fulfillment of that particular text in that context, in that moment. But often we can look back and understand that there's much more that God was doing in that. Just like by God's grace. Can I holler at you for a second? When you're 70 years old, looking back on your life, you go, oh, that's what God was up to, right? So this is a very practical and hopeful point of understanding the scriptures that now we understand as a dim reflection, the scriptures say, but then we will know in full. And so we look back and understand something about Isaiah's words that he didn't even know. So what do we learn about the origin of Satan from Isaiah chapter 14? Let's just be clear about this. Satan was from heaven, likely a fallen angel. Where do we get that? Look at what it says in verse 12. How you are are fallen from heaven. Secondly, what do we understand about the origin of Satan? Satan tried to become equal, if not greater, than God. So he was not only an angel, but an angel with a purpose, a desire to become greater, if not equal to God. How do we know that? Isaiah said, you said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. Above the stars of God, I will set my throne. Above the north, above the clouds. So we see this aspirational desire of this angel, or Satan himself. Thirdly, what do we understand about the origin of Satan? Satan was punished immediately for his ambition, for his play at glory. He was punished immediately. Look again at verse 12 and then 14. It says, how you are cut down. So this this angel did not fall from grace by their own accord. They were cut down. This is a, a, a sovereign act of cutting down. Not only so, but you are brought down to Sheol. In the Old Testament, Sheol is the land of the dead. The land of the dead. And so, What we're to learn about Satan's origin here is not just that he made a play at glory, not just that he is an angel, but that when he did, God immediately brought retribution, God immediately brings consequence, cuts him down, and relegates him to the land of the dead. That's Satan's origin. Now, how about his power? One of the most popular works, and and likely where many of us, if we didn't grow up in the church, got our vision of Satan growing up, was whether we knew it or not, actually, was from Dante's Inferno. You know, this crazy story about moving through the nine circles of hell. It's actually one part of three poems that this guy Dante wrote. And it's this brilliant and picturesque caricature. And that's what it is, a caricature, an understanding of one man's understanding of hell and the realm of the dead and Satan himself. But for Christians, where we ought to get our initial understanding of Satan is in Genesis. Genesis chapter 3, in God's providence, as he's ordered the canon or the collection of Old and New Testament literatures, gives us a fascinating account of who Satan is and what his power is like. Now, what's fascinating about Genesis, is kind of like Isaiah, is that the writer of Genesis never says the snake is Satan, right? There's never like a key at the bottom that just says, all right, so when I'm talking about the snake, I'm actually talking about Satan. But we can understand that this is actually what is happening. Let's turn to the left. If you're in Isaiah, turn to the left to Genesis chapter 3. Or if you've got one of those new Bibles, type in Genesis 3. Genesis 3 verse 1 is where we'll look. Genesis 3 verse 1. 
Again, we've looked at the origin of Satan, and now we'll consider his power. Now, the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. Now, this is how we're introduced to this this slithering beast that comes along, and if you know this story, messes everything up, right? But it's really critical that we read very slowly, because isn't it true we read our Bibles too quickly, and we can miss something here? Verse 1 says much about Satan and his power. See, as we consider the power of Satan within the context of the fall, we need to even contextualize his power. Like Isaiah 14, both the origin and power of Satan are revealed to be what we'll call ontologically submissive or subordinate or subservient to God. What's that mean? Thank you, preacher, for introducing that word. What that means is by the very existence of Satan or that angel or the serpent, we know that he is subservient or inferior to God by his very existence. How do we know that? Because Satan's origin and his power are a product of God's creation. Satan's origin and his power are a product of God's creation. Notice in Isaiah 14, he's an angel. Who created all of the angels? God. Notice in verse 1, what does it say? More crafty than any other beast in the field, what, what? the Lord God had made. So, so we see God's sovereignty even over the adversary, the evil one, Satan. So Satan is an angel in Isaiah, and God made all the angels. Satan is a serpent in Genesis 3, and God created all reptiles, all created things, everything God has created. And we know that this angel and this serpent, to give us more clarity and precision here, is indeed Satan himself. When we look at the words of John, hear this, Revelation 12, 9. And the great dragon was thrown down. There's Isaiah 14. That ancient serpent, there's Genesis chapter 3, who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He has thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. There's Isaiah 14 again. So John looks back and forward in Revelation and gives clarity for us about who this angel was in Isaiah 15 and who this serpent was in Genesis 3. That being said, here's where we often take our hands off the text and go, see, not a big deal. Don't worry about Satan because God created him. He's subservient to him. We should be careful. We should be mindful. Continue reading in Genesis 3, verse 2 through 7. Even though Satan's power is inferior, it's still real and it's still impactful. He said, that's the serpent, to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of the tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. It's important to note, God never said don't touch it. He said don't eat it. So even in her response, there's something going on here in this story that they are adding to God's law, adding to what God has said. Confusion has already begun, in other words. But the serpent said to the woman, you shall not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloth. And there's shame. Shame shows up in the middle of the evil one's work. And so these sorts of things are important to pull apart, because historically, this is the story where we understand that sin entered into the human story, where sin enters into the human heart. 
And, and often that's the only thing, or rather that, that's the sum of the things that we uh, understand from it. And those things are good and true. However, it reveals something else here too, not just of the origin of sin, but the power of Satan. See, in it we see the way he works. And he doesn't want us to slow down on this text. He wants us to read it quickly. But we see how he works and his power and his schemes to exert his will over human beings, I think is made plain here in the Genesis account by God's grace. Specifically, this passage reveals that Satan's power is found in his ability to question, divide, and confuse. To question, divide, and confuse. What do I mean by that? The first thing he does is what? Did God really say that? Did God really say that? Is that really the application point from that sermon that you heard? Is that really what he wants you to do? So Satan questions what God has said. This this is different from asking a humble question of how to understand what God has said. Satan is asking a question, did God really speak to you? Did, Did God really give you direction? Did God really say that? And we know that because he changes his words. Right? And even Eve begins to rearrange God's words in this. So Satan questions what God has said. Secondly, Satan divides what God has unified. Adam and Eve, we are told, had already been two who had become one flesh in Genesis chapter 2. And now the serpent slithers along, not to the couple, but to the woman. He divides them. He divides them. And so what, what God has unified, Satan divides. Notice Where is Adam this whole time? He's chilling somewhere in the shadows while Eve is having this interaction. And they were meant to actually, in community, take this kind of thing on together, and yet they remain divided. Adam doesn't enter the scene until after Eve has been been deceived and after she just hands him the apple and go, oh, wow, Adam was there? Like, if you're just reading the story, you go, oh, he was there the whole time? And yet in their hearts and in their minds, they had been divided. Thirdly, and I think this is what is most nefarious, So again, Satan's power is that he questions what God has said and he divides what God has unified, but his power is also found that Satan convinces us that God withholds and that he, Satan, is generous. That God is withholding from you, my sisters and my brothers, and that Satan has a bounty that is waiting for you. Have you ever felt this scheme? This is what Genesis 3 is telling us. Look, but the serpent said to the woman, what? You won't surely die. Like, how could God say that's so mean that he would say that to you? That's so wrong. Like, he's about your good. Like, he wouldn't say that. And so, for God knows that what you eat, or rather, that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like him and you'll know good from evil. In other words, I know the path to the good life. I know how to get you what you want. I know how to get you the knowledge of good and evil. In fact, you'll be like God. So, here's here's what Satan is doing, as we revealed it, we saw in the origin. In his power, he gets us to replay his story of origin. Right? What's, his, what's his origin story? He is a created being who tried to be like God. So we shouldn't be surprised that the power that he works within God's creation is that he talks to created beings and tells them they can what? Be like God. So when we question God's word, not try to understand it. That's different. Please, we are all learning and growing to understand God's word with the humility of submitting ourselves to God's word. But when we question his goodness, when we question his character, that's fundamentally what the evil one is doing here. And then when God divides, or rather when Satan divides what God has united. This is why the Apostle Paul writes so much to churches like Ephesus and Colossae about making sure that they are not divided. That he is praying for them to be unified. Why? Because God brought them together. Satan divides and God has unified. 
Then thirdly, that Satan convinces us that God withholds and that he really is the generous one, that Satan is the generous one. This is his power, and we must be cognizant of it. So that's the origin, that's the power. Now what about the plan? I think one of the most shocking moments in all of Jesus' earthly ministry is after one of the most beautiful moments. So one of the most beautiful moments is followed by one of the most tragic. Turn to Matthew chapter 16, verse 15. Matthew 16, verse 15, the first book of the New Testament, so all the way through the Old, if you get to Mark, Luke, and John, go back to the left. Matthew 16, verse 15 through 19. One of the most beautiful moments, Jesus leads his disciples to a place that many believe to be the actual gates of hell, that it was a pit where human sacrifices were made, thrown in in order to make sacrifices to unknown gods, particularly the god of Pan, which this region was recently named after. So he stands at this opening, this gaping cave, this opening that many believe were the gates of hell. And he asks his disciples, who do people say that I am? And who do you say that I am? And that's where we'll pick it up in Matthew 16, verse 15. He said to them, that's Jesus, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, that's son of Jonah, For flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. So so Jesus, in this stroke of poetic and discipleship brilliance, walks his disciples to the actual physical place where people called the gates of hell, and he makes it plain. The gates of hell here in the physical realm, nor the gates of hell in the spiritual realm, will prevail against him nor his people, the church. So he gives us this powerful picture that the gates of hell will not prevail against Jesus and his church. So we might think, and maybe even all of his disciples are thinking, so who cares about Satan's plan then? If it's not going to prevail, right? If this plan is not going to prevail, why should we worry about this? Why should we be thinking about this? It's not going to work. His origin, his power, his plan, they don't matter because Jesus, look, he says they're not going to prevail. It won't work, right? Well, I think Jesus cared a lot. He cared deeply, in fact, that his disciples remained vigilant against the devil. Elsewhere, we understand from places like Matthew 6 and John 17 that Jesus consistently prayed for his people to be protected and even delivered from the evil one. In fact, he taught his disciples to pray to deliver us from the evil and deliver us from the evil one. So we may think that because Jesus says that he will prevail against, or rather that the gates of hell will not prevail against him, that we shouldn't be mindful of these things, but Jesus thinks the opposite. Jesus teaches the opposite. In fact, look at the very next scene. Look at verse 21. This is wild. God help us. From that time, means not just once, but consistently, ongoingly. Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And watch what Peter does. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, far be it from you, Lord. This shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. So get this, Peter 
who was just praised for his deft articulation of the identity of Jesus, right? Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah. Flesh and blood has a reveal, like ducky for you. You get the gold ribbon today, or the gold star, or whatever you pass out to say good job. Whatever you get, you've done it. Great job. That is true. And now Jesus calls him what? Satan. That's a quick turnaround. If you think you had a good day that resulted in a bad day, I assure you, Peter is having a worse juxtaposition of good and bad, right? Praised by Jesus and then called Satan by Jesus. Now, why? Because Peter is apparently that swiftly becoming a victim of Satan's power and therefore a tool to accomplish his purpose. So quickly, Peter moves from praising and articulating that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, to being deceived by the evil one, questioning, dividing, and being confused about what God has just said and what God has just revealed. In other words, I think what we can discern from this text is that Satan's mind is set on the things of man, on earthly things, earthly ambition, fleeting pleasures, not the things of God. So in essence, Peter's mind was set on earthly things like Satan, and therefore he is being drawn into the plan of Satan. And so what is that plan? What is Satan trying to do based on his origin, based on his power? What's his plan? Well, isn't it true? Peter's actions and words may seem really noble at first. He doesn't want his friend to suffer and die. That's a good thing. It's a good thing to not want your friend to suffer and to die. And he even says, far be it from you. It's not going to happen. But in saying that, Peter articulates the plan of Satan. And here it is, church. The plan of Satan is avoid the cross. Avoid the cross. And so Peter's words, what are they saying? In essence, don't die. Don't go to the cross. That's Satan's plan. And why is that his nefarious plan? Why is that his desire? Because through the death of Jesus, everything finds light in life. Through the death of Jesus, that's where victory is. Think about it. All through Matthew 4, which we looked at last week, Satan is trying to convince Jesus, don't suffer, don't die. Stop being hungry. I know you're hungry. Here's some bread. Stop waiting for glory to come. I'll give you glory now. Stop worshiping your father. That's hard. Worship me. I'll give you pleasure. What Satan constantly is trying to get Jesus to do is to take up comfort and leave behind suffering so that he would avoid the cross. It didn't work with Jesus. So what's Satan do? I'll get Peter. I'll get Peter to help me get Jesus to avoid the cross. He'll listen to Peter. Peter's one of his three closest friends. Let's get Peter to just say, hey, Jesus, I don't want you to hurt. I don't want you to suffer. It'll sound like a really nice thing, like a really loving thing. That's still his plan. Avoid the cross. And I'd like to suggest to you that it didn't work with Jesus, it didn't work with Peter, and what the evil one is up to right now is trying to convince you and me, avoid the cross. You don't have to suffer. You can be like God. It's the same exact lie, the same exact plan. In fact, one of the primary ways that he has convinced the American church of his plan is actually by using the word of God against us to the point that we regularly believe that the gospel means that we don't have to suffer, that we can be comfortable. Perhaps many of us, the only verse in Jeremiah that we know is that the Lord has a plan to prosper us. 
We're not even sure where that is, but we sure like that idea. The American gospel has convinced us that we can avoid the cross. And I want to plead with you to understand that is demonic. Your comfort in this life is not promised, and it is demonic in the plan of Satan that you too would avoid the cross. See, I heard someone say recently that Jesus didn't suffer so that we wouldn't. Jesus suffered so that when we did, we would become like him. Jesus did not suffer so that you wouldn't. Jesus suffered so that when we did, we could become like him. And that is the last thing that Satan wants. The last thing he wants is in your suffering to trust Christ. In your hardship to look to God. In your pain to allow Him to heal you. And so since He failed in keeping Jesus from suffering, since He failed in getting Peter to dissuade Christ, the plan is to get you and me to avoid the cross in our lives. Here's the plan. Since the cross is the place not only of suffering, but of redemption and healing, that it has the capacity to make us like Christ, Satan wants you to avoid the cross and all suffering so that you'll live for yourself. That's the plan. Secondly, Jesus, or rather Satan, wants us to avoid the cross so that injustice will prevail in this world, will prevail in this world. Satan wants us to avoid the cross so that we'll fall in love with this world. All of those things convince us and get us in line, if you will, like Peter in that moment, far be it from you. You don't have to suffer and die. With the last couple of moments we have, let's look at the defeat of Satan. So we've looked at the origin, we've looked at the power, we've looked at the plan. Now what is the defeat? How has Satan been defeated? Suffice to say, Genesis chapter 3 gives us a picture of the defeat of Satan. Even at the height of Satan's power, he is revealed to be a defeated adversary. Genesis 3, verse 15, I will put enmity, God says, between you, he's speaking to the serpent, and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. This is a powerful, what we call Christological or Christ-centered passage pointing us to the incarnation of the Son of God. So get this, from the very beginning of time, God gave a consequence to the evil one promising that his son would put him to death. This is how powerful and potent our God is in comparison. They are not equally matched foes trapped in a death match, and we're not sure how it's going to end. From the beginning, Satan has been revealed to be a defeated adversary. Secondly, in Isaiah 14, it's even more severe. Hear this, but you are brought low to, down to Sheol, to the far reaches of the pit. Those who see you will stare at you and ponder over you. Is this the man who made the earth tremble, who shook kingdoms, who made the world like a desert and overthrew its cities, who did not let his prisoners go home? All the kings of the nations lie in glory, each in his own tomb, but you are cast out away from your grave like a loathed branch clothed with the slain, those pierced by the sword who go down to the stones of the pit like a dead body trampled underfoot. You will not be joined with them in burial because you have been, you have been destroyed. You, you have destroyed your land and you have slain your people. May the offspring of evildoers nevermore be named. Isaiah's not messing around. He's not talking about just a prophet who ha or, a, or rather a king who happens to fall or a, 
an angel who happens to fall. We're talking about utter consequence and destruction. In other words, it never goes well and will never go well and has never gone well for Satan. Thus, in Genesis and Isaiah, we're prepared for an eternal defeat that the writer of Hebrews brings crystal clarity to. When he says, through the death, through death, Jesus might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. See, Jesus' defeat, the defeat of Satan on the cross is where you and I find our victory. And the brilliance of this, I think, is why Satan wants to avoid the cross. It's because at the cross we find a different origin story, don't we? At the cross, we find a completely unworldly power. At the cross, we find a cruciform kind of planet God for the fullness of time that the Son would take on flesh to die in our place and for our sins. Do you see? Jesus came to undo all that Satan had done and planned to do, yet the defeat of Satan comes in such an unexpected way. He doesn't fight earthly power with earthly power. Jesus defeats Satan through suffering and death and resurrection through the inauguration of a kingdom that is already but not yet, a kingdom that is not of this world. It's an origin of humility, not pride. It's a power of truth, not deception. It's a plan of love and justice, not vanity. See, what the Bible ultimately teaches us about Satan is that while we are to remain vigilant, he is no match for Jesus. That is to say, the defeat of Satan ought to change the way that you and I live our lives. Every day, not just this day, not just tomorrow, it should change the way we face today. Let me just ask us three questions in conclusion. Where do you find your origin story? In other words, where do you believe your personhood begins? Where do you believe your worth begins? Where, where do you begin See, in our flesh, I think like Satan, we are tempted to make ourselves, whether by obeying religious rules or by obeying the rules that we have as impulses within our own hearts. But the defeat of Satan teaches us that our true origin is found in the humility of Jesus and not in our own glory. So where do you find your origin story? Secondly, where do you find your power? Where do you find your power? In our flesh, like Satan, we are tempted to find power in ourselves, whether through our morality or through money or leadership or skill or popularity or fame. But the defeat of Satan teaches us that true power is found in weakness, dependency, and brokenness because in the truth of our need, Christ's power is made perfect in our weakness. Lastly, how do you make your plans? How do you make your plans? In our flesh, I think like Satan, we pursue ambitious dreams and goals that we have invented for ourselves that result in our own rescue, our own self-adulation, and ultimately in our comfort. But the defeat of Satan teaches us that the plans of the Lord, that what he has for us is a heavenly prosperity and a hope that is grounded in self-giving love, justice, and that kind of life is worthy of our suffering. Because that kind of life says your suffering is not the end of the story. Because in Christ, we find a new origin. We find a power that is not of this world. And we find a plan where ultimately at the fullness of time, the defeat of Satan will be fully realized. And all we will know is the light and truth and beauty of God. So Heavenly Father, help us. May we be a people who do not live in fear, but a people who live with hope. A people who do not live in ignorance, but a people who live with truth. 
so that we would be a people who are able, as Paul writes, to withstand the flame that you guard our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Help us to be hopeful. Help us to be vigilant. For your glory and our good we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.